chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and as you turn there, I'm going to also ask that you mark in your Bible with either a finger, a piece of paper, a pen, or something else into Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and as you turn there, I just want to tell you all, you know, as I think it was last year that it happened, but Tim Harris and I went golfing together. We were on the same team, and I heard him say that all day. It comes together quickly. We'll get it right one of these times, but I don't remember him ever getting it figured out on the golf course like he did on stage just now. Maybe that could be my memory going bad, Tim. I don't remember. I do remember my back hurting that evening after carrying us to a, a solid score, uh, but, but I do thank God that his singing is much better than his irons, his driver, and his putter. Praise God for that. Amen. Yeah. Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 23. So if you could, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, as we've been looking at these three foretellings of Christ and his own death and his own resurrection. We are going to start with Mark chapter 10, verse 32. We are going to read a few verses, and then we are going to go to the scene of the cross where Jesus would truly die. So this would be the third time in which he has predicted his own death, but also his own resurrection. And what we will do is we will begin by reading Jesus' words, then we're going to go to the foot of the cross. We're going to go to the scene of the cross, and we're going to look at something, because as some of you may know, we will not be here next week, so I won't get to be here on Palm Sunday preaching about the cross. Therefore, I'm going to get it in a week early. So, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32, and this is what the Bible reads. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And talking to the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn, condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. If you have your Bibles marked, or if you want to flip over to the next gospel account, please join me in going into Luke chapter 23. And we're going to start there in verse 32. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. And this is what we read. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him which read, This is the king of the Jews. 
Amen. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here we find ourselves at the scene of the cross of Jesus. One thing we must note is that Jesus was not the only one to die on a cross. As we see in this particular story, there were two others with him. There were thousands of people that died by crucifixion in the same manner. So Jesus was not the only one to be killed on the cross. He was the only cross that truly mattered. Why? Because that is where he hung for all of your sin and all of my sin. And as he bled out and as he poured himself out as a sacrifice for you and for me, he did so by humbling himself to endure the joy set before him, even to the point of a cross in which we would be completely humiliated, mocked, spit on, beaten, and exposed for the world to see for people like you and me. If you don't believe God has given you anything, then I would encourage you to read that all over again. If you, say to me, if you say to yourself, well, God must not love me, he hasn't blessed me, he hasn't healed me, he hasn't restored me, he didn't redeem me, he didn't guide me or provide for me, I would, I would beg to differ. For this is the scene of the cross. Now here's what I want us, want us to make note of. There's a few things I want to make note of as this particular story unfolds, as this scene is played out for the world to see. And the first is the division of the crosses. The division of the crosses. See, if you were to look on the television right now, this wasn't strategically put up there, but we're going to use it for a visual illustration. How many crosses are there? Three. There is one in the middle, which who hung on the middle cross? Jesus. And one on the left and one on the right. Both were criminals sentenced to death, just as Jesus was sentenced to death. And here we see a picture of how the world will actually receive Jesus. Now, let me just clarify. This does not mean that one out of every two people that walk the earth are going to receive Christ. But we do see that there are going to be two responses to Christ. People are either going to fully and follow his commands and obey him and imitate him, Or people are going to oppose him, to mock him, to ridicule him. And then, as you claim to be a Christian, they're also going to be there to mock and ridicule you. So there's two two ways that people receive Christ. By believing in him and surrendering to him, or by rejecting him and opposing him. And in this particular story that we just read, we see a beautiful picture of how the world receives Jesus. Again, not one out of every two. The percentage is much lower than that on the amount of people that will truly come to faith in Christ. For Jesus said himself on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he talks about there will be a wide gate which leads to destruction, destruction, ultimately eternal separation and death, which is traveled by many. And then he warns about a narrow gate which leads to life that is traveled by few. So by Jesus' own mouth, we read that, and we know that there is a greater percentage of people that will reject him and oppose him than receive him. 
And if you were to, to look at any of the statistics of the world, there are almost 8 billion people on the planet, and there are maybe a 1 to 2 billion Christians. So that tells you there is less than one-fourth of the population of the planet that claims to be a Christ follower. And that's also self-identified Christians, whether they're true, genuine believers or not, we don't truly know, but God does. So what we do see is that there is a great division brought by the cross of Jesus, okay? So one of us, some of us are going to oppose him and reject him. Some of us are going to receive him and obey him. What we also see is this, the division of this Christ, of Jesus, isn't just seen when we get to heaven, but it's here and now. What do I mean by that? Well, you will see political figures, activists, and even your neighbors be in disagreement on Jesus. You will see political figures, activists, and maybe even your own neighbors that are in disagreement on God's word. These same people will be in disagreement in godly principles. This we clearly see in our nation. I'll give a few examples. Our nation fights to define things such as life, marriage, gender. We could go on and on and on. But we see such tense argument, disagreement, and even violence from one side to the other in which we are all fighting against one another. And if we were to look at the root of most of this, probably all of this, it's all rooted in one of two things, whether people receive Jesus and believe his word and follow his commands or they don't. And we as Christians are able to define these things, as I've listed, by God's word. Yet those that reject Christ will always be on the opposite side. Those that reject Christ will always oppose God's definition for life, for marriage, for gender, and so on. So we see that the cross of Christ truly divides you and your neighbor today. The cross of Christ will divide me from a political figure or an activist today. Now, Jesus warned that we will face persecution. Now, this is where I come to my first point, and and I would just call it the line. The line. As we see in this picture on the screen, three crosses, one receives Jesus and and pleads with him to remember him when he goes into his kingdom, and the other one mocks him and says, well, if you truly are who you claim to be, you should save us all, and mocks Jesus and ridicules the other man. And this is where I would say the line comes, that you and I must draw the line, almost drawing the line in the sand when it comes to our faith. What do I mean by that? That you must be standing firm and immovable on God's whole objective truth found in His Word and the person of Christ. That you and I cannot waver from one side to the other when it comes to our faith, when it comes to godly principle, when it comes to God's Word. We must stand firm on His Word. And I remember what Joshua said. You remember the the famously quoted words of Joshua when he said, You can choose for yourselves, but as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. So what that means is that if I am truly to follow God, how He has called me to live, and I am truly to glorify Him, I must draw the line and ensure that I raise up my kids to serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Not to waver because it doesn't meet the norm or you may not be accepted by the majority. 
But I must preach to them and to train them and equip them to stand firm. And I don't know about you, but but I take great, I mean, pressure and pride and, and a lot of weight upon me because Michaela and I have the responsibility to train these four girls in the way and in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord so that they would stand firm on God's word. They would not waver and they would do so in such a way that even in the face of opposition or persecution or rejection, mockery or humiliation, they would stand firm on God's word. But we just don't do it at home. We do it here. We must be committed as a church to stand firm on God's word and truly draw the line when it comes to things that the world may support or the world may oppose. We must truly ensure that we as a church continue to preach the fullness of God's word in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, in the face of rejection, mockery, humiliation, because the Bible says if God is for us and who can really be against this? I mean, truly, who could be against you? The feeble minds of man, the feeble words of man, or even the feeble hands of man that have no comparison to the holy, righteous God of the universe. If God is for you, then who could be against you? Or maybe we could remember the words written in the Old Testament that warns us that if if we truly are His, and we are His people, then there is no weapon that can be formed against us that will ever prosper. Because if I am truly drawing the line and raising my kids, one of these days, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be 30 years from now, it may be a long time from now, but one of these days, I will be with Him. And all of the people that reject Him will be sentenced to eternal separation and will die eternally in a place we know as hell. But I am not willing to compromise these convictions. I'm not willing to train my kids to stand somewhat firm, somewhat immovable, and to compromise these convictions so that they could be accepted by the majority. You and I must do our job. And what, what a perfectly timed introduction to this service as Scott was talking to the men, all of us strong men, all of us strong, courageous, fear, fearless men that are training up the next generation. We must truly train the next generation. We must truly train our people in this church house to stand firm on the word of God. Secondly, we see the confession of the thief. And I'm not just talking about Jesus being who he claimed to be. But if you read the story of the, of the thief that is then welcomed into heaven, welcomed into paradise, as Jesus would say, you see this thief confess to the other that they were actually receiving the reward that was due them. Isn't that such a powerful statement? He says, And we, talking to the other thief, justly, we are receiving the due reward for what? Our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And I want to bring up that statement to just illuminate something that we all must come to. And whenever it comes to salvation, all of us who have received eternal life in Christ have all found ourselves in this very point. Where we recognize that because of our deeds, we are truly Worthy of receiving death. 
This man recognized that because of his own deeds, because of his own lifestyle, because of his own decisions, he is now hanging on a cross and he is rightly being judged. Same with you and I. We must also have the same mentality, especially when it comes to finding eternal life in Christ. You and I must know, we must recognize, the Bible is clear that the the entire world, all of us, have fallen short of God's glory and have sinned. And the wages of those sin, as the Apostle Paul wrote, is what? Death. But there is a free gift from God, which is eternal life, found in Christ Jesus. But what we see is that this man confesses to the other one, we're truly receiving the reward that was due them because of their deeds. You and I must understand that apart from Christ, His cross, His resurrection, we would be worthy of, deserving of, and sentenced to eternal separation from Him. That because of our deeds, because of your deeds, because of my thoughts, because of my words, because of my actions, because of my decisions, I am truly worthy of receiving eternal death. But thanks be to God that Jesus endured the joy set before him to the point of a cross in which he would pour out. And as John the Baptist would say, behold, the Lamb of God that did what? Came to take away the sins of the world. So that whenever you look at the cross, you see the confession of the thief, which also is our confession when it comes to finding, you know, salvation in Christ, that we are truly in need of being saved. That apart from Jesus, we would truly be sentenced to and worthy of and truly recipient and, you know, worthy, earned, deserved recipients of his eternal death. But because of Jesus, we know that we have a payment for our sin. So the wages that you and I should pay for our sin, he paid in full. And we know that when Jesus hung on the cross and whenever he screamed out to Talistai, it is finished, that literally meant that the payment was paid in full. So those who had put their faith and trust in him would no longer be held responsible to pay those wages, but then could be welcomed into his eternal life. So we see the man confess to the other that they were truly, truly deserving of this reward. Just as you and I truly are deserving of, apart from our faith in Christ, deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus endured the fullness of the wrath of God to invite and offer to you and I the fullness of his life. And then we see the confession of the man whenever he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which is all, which is essentially the, the plea that you and I have whenever it comes to that moment in life where we recognize we are destined to hell and we need to be saved. That moment where God draws us to himself and he reveals to us that we are a sinner in need of a savior named Jesus. Whenever he draws us in all of our brokenness and all of our pain and all of our suffering to a moment in our lives where we are driven to our knees and we call upon his holy name. That is what is happening here with this man. He is being drawn to God and and he confesses to Jesus. He says, hey, remember me when you go into your kingdom. Remember me. Isn't that essentially the cry of you and me? God, have mercy on me. For I am an imperfect, flawed man. Maybe not for you. Maybe you are much better than I am. Maybe you are much holier than I am. But if we were to be honest, all of us have this same plead with the Lord to remember 
us, to have mercy on us, to extend His grace to us, to have mercy on a sinner like me. Now, the beautiful thing is that you and I, because of our faith and faithfulness to Him, we can rest assured that we will be full recipients of this eternal life that He promised. Not because we deserve it, not because we've ever worked our way to earn it, not because we've ever given a set amount and therefore we have bought our way in. There is only one way to receive this eternal life, and it was by the blood of the Lamb that was shed 2,000 years ago, in which people like you and me who are broken, who are flawed, who are imperfect, who have past that we are embarrassed to even mention, we can plead with the Lord and we can call upon His holy name and we can be confident that one of these days we will stand before Him and we will be able to stand in the righteousness of Christ as he puts it upon us and we will confidently approach the throne of grace forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus that you as a broken person could plead to the Lord have mercy on you. And remember me. It's almost like I cry out to the Lord. Remember me when you write those names in that book that's going to be open one day. Remember me when you write and sketch those names into the book of life. Remember me and have mercy on me. And lastly, we see the offering of Jesus. That Jesus offers life to this sinful criminal of a man. That Jesus offers to this man something that he did not deserve. The man knew what he deserved which was death. I know what I truly deserve in my own strength and by my own deeds. And it is death. But thanks be to God that He is rich in mercy and His immeasurable grace is given to people like you and me that we could one of these days live eternally in a place where we cannot measure it, we cannot grasp it, we can never even begin to comprehend it, but we will be just be humbly receiving of His mercy, His majesty, His glory. But we see this offering of Jesus. And He offers eternal life to this man because this man was about a couple of hours away from dying on a cross next to the Savior of the world. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me. You will be with me in paradise. So Jesus offers to this man what he offers to every single broken person that is here today. Life in him. Not just life in him to where our life is good and better here and now but eternal life to be spent with Him, in which we will be able to see for our very eyes the hands that were pierced, that we will be able to see with our very eyes the face which was spit on and beaten for us, that we will be able to dwell with Him forever and ever and ever. So I want to end this message similar to the ending of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. If you remember that, story in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and empowered the people to begin to speak in other languages in which they began to proclaim the goodness of God. 
And all of these people of other dialects, other tongues, other languages begin to hear the gospel message being preached in their own language. And they're all pierced to the heart, the Bible says. And they all are pierced to the heart. Why? Because they now believe that this Jesus that they crucified truly was the Savior of the world, the Son of God. And they asked Peter, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter said to them that you should repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And that you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that this promise was for you, and it was for your children, and it was for all of those who were far off that God had drawn to himself. So here is what I want us to do to end this message by asking ourselves this question. question, What shall you do? How do you respond to a message in which we look at the cross of Christ being carried and then nailed to for you and I? What do, how do we respond to a message or, or as we get ready to walk into next week, the, the Palm Sunday service and the time in which Jesus makes that triumphant entry into Jerusalem for the very last time? And how do we respond to the message of Jesus, the gospel of Christ, whenever we think about Him dying on a cross for our sin and then on the third day, he would be right, raised. How do we respond? Well, we respond by one of two ways. If you are here today, and if you were to die today, and if you were to answer yourself honestly, where would you go? And your destination would not be heaven because you have never confessed your sin to Him and you have never been a born, born again believer. I plead with you to repent and to call upon His name. While there is still time, I would plead with you to, as Peter said, to repent of your sin and be baptized in his name and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you can receive this promise that he spoke about during his three years of ministry and that he hung on the cross to give to the world. I plead with you, if you do not know Jesus, to please consider the fact that you are not promised tomorrow, but eternity in one of two places is a guarantee. That you would plead with the Lord to remember you and have mercy on a sinner like you. And if you are here today and you are a born again believer, follower of Jesus Christ, you should rejoice. You should praise his holy name. You should wake up every single morning thankful for the breath that you have, the day that you have. But guess what? One of these days, you too will be in the same boat as this criminal. Who let the dogs out? (laughs) So as we end this message... Consider the question of those people on the day of Pentecost. What shall we do? Again, if you are not a follower of Jesus, I plead with you to call upon his name and to repent of your sin, to be baptized in his name and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that is a promise for you and to receive this eternal life that is a promise for you. But if you are a born again believer... Stand firm on the word of God, be immovable on his promises, and to rejoice daily, because one of these days, you too will find yourself in the presence of him forever. Let's pray.